Today's scripture is Jonah chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? and also much cattle. You may be seated. As you're seated, let me pray for us. Uh, Father, we are uh, overjoyed at the opportunity to gather together in the name of your son, Jesus, and to gather together to open the scriptures and to see what is there. Lord, we are needy, and you have everything we need. You are sufficient, and we are in need, and we ask you that you would help us today. Help us as we look at this, help us as we apply it to our own lives, and help us as we seek to live it out to your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. My name is Brett, and uh, part of the team here, it is my joy to be opening Jonah chapter 4 with you, uh, verses 10 and 11. I just want to note something. At the end of the passage, it says, uh, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? I have no intention of talking about cattle today. I just want you to know that. I want to, I'm going to be upfront about it. I don't want you to be hanging on, wondering when I'm going to get to the cattle part. We're not doing it. We're not doing it. I grew up around a lot of cows. And it's not that I'm traumatized by that or something. It's just that I don't have time to get to it. So if you are in a community group discussion this week and you're talking about the lack of cattle discussed in the, in the message, I just want you to email John at ChristCityChurch.ca. Let him know. And uh, let, let, he'll have some good answers for you. I think he's the one who's not in the room right now, so that's good. And uh, he'll answer that for you. That's kind of a joke, but also, like, I'm not talking about cattle, so that's okay. It's important, but it's... You want to go eat your lunch, so I can't talk about cows. Okay. Um, this is our final Sunday in the book of Jonah. Uh, Sam did a wonderful job walking us through the entirety of chapter four last week, talking about God, uh, Jonah's anger and God's mercy. And so we're gonna pick up the text this morning like you just heard read, verses 10 and 11. And what we see is that Jonah is angry and God is merciful. It's a continuation, obviously, from there. Um, what is Jonah angry about? That's the question that we wanna be asking. Well, what is he actually angry about? Um, In general, he's angry at the fact that God would show mercy to the evil Ninevites. Uh, But in particular, at the end of chapter 4, he's angry about a dead plant. Now, that's not something I thought I was going to say in the introduction to any sermon that I was ever going to preach. But that's what Jonah's actually upset about here. He's upset, uh, in particular, about a dead plant. He's upset in general because God has done something that he does not agree with. And, and to bring you into the story for a second and just remind you of where we've been, I just want you to see that Jonah, he went into the city of Nineveh to preach the word of God. There's a warning for the city of Nineveh that they had to change their ways. He goes in and he preaches that. The people respond, the king responds, they repent, they turn from their evil. And because of their response, God relents and he does not do the destruction that he had planned for them. Now, rather than causing the prophet Jonah to really rejoice over this, it actually makes him angry. It says it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. So what does he do? Jonah He's in the city, he's angry, sees that God's not going to judge them. He leaves the city, goes out east of the city, and he sets himself up a vantage point where he can sit and just stew and be angry. So that's where he is. He goes in and he sits down. And my take on this, I think he's gone outside the city and he's still near the city, watching the city, because he still thinks God's actually going to destroy it. At least he's hopeful. 
He's holding out hope that maybe God will change his mind and actually destroy this wicked, wicked city. So he's sitting out in the sun. He's exposed. Uh, We saw last week that God causes this plant to grow up really fast and give him some shade, and that's wonderful, and Jonah appreciates it. And then we saw that God caused that plant to just shrivel up and die, and Jonah was angry again. He says he's angry enough to die. He's having a bad week. It's a, a bad, I mean, it's probably a bad couple of months, to be really honest, that Jonah's having. That's where we get to our text, though, in verse 10. Verse 10 says, The Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a day. So when the plant is there, Jonah's happy. When the plant is gone, Jonah's angry. Now God speaks to him and God lays out a contrast for him that exposes where Jonah's heart is really at. The plant that God gave him is a gift. Jonah did not labor for it. He did not create it. He didn't make it grow. He only had it for a day and he's upset that his plant is gone. And God uses it to expose his heart. It says he feels pity for the plant, and and God speaks to show him the contrast and the error of his ways. He asks Jonah a question in verse 11. Look at this. It says, And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who did not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Now, as we look at this text, I I want to give special attention to the way that we see God's love for the people displayed. God's love for the people of that great city. And I want us to pay attention to this on how that shapes us or forms us in the city that we live in and how we relate to it. We're going to talk about the lostness of the lost. We're going to talk about the compassion of God. And we're going to talk third about our place in the story. The lostness of the lost, the compassion of God, and our place in the story. Let's talk about the first point, the lostness of the lost. What do I mean when I say that? Well, did you see in verse 11 how God speaks to the people of Nineveh? And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? What does it mean that they do not know their right hand from their left? Well, some want to argue that it has to do with children. Some want to argue that it means they were helpless or they were ignorant in some kind of way. But I think God's getting at something much more helpful and much deeper uh, for us to see than the, the just kind of the surface level thoughts that we might have on it. Now remember, you got to remember, God is speaking with Jonah, and Jonah's a good Jewish boy. Jonah's a good Hebrew. Jonah was raised learning the Torah, the first five books of the Bible or the books of Moses. Jonah is well, uh, well informed about how God relates to his people, and he really understands the scriptures. He is speaking with a prophet of God, somebody who understands what's going on. And the phrase about knowing their right hand from their left, it actually would have struck at the heart of Jonah. Because in the Old Testament, it's often referenced in connection to obedience to God's will and obedience to God's ways. Let let me show you what I mean. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 32. You shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land that you are to possess. And so God speaks to his people And he says, you are to walk in the way that I have given you. You are to obey the commands that I have given you. You shall not turn aside to the right and you shall not turn aside to the left. Walk on the path that I have given you. Later on in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 28, 
It's talking about the blessings of obedience. In verse 13, it says, The Lord will make you the head and not the tail, and you shall only go up and not down. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, being careful to do them, and if you do not turn aside from any of the words that I command you to the day, to, to the right hand or to the left, to go after other gods to serve them. And so he says, if you will obey me, and you will relate to me, and you will not go after other gods, you will not be idolaters, you will not worship other gods, you will not go to the right or to the left, but you will obey me, it'll go well with you. Joshua was mentored by Moses. It says in Joshua chapter 1, verse 7, Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that, my, that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. God is speaking to Joshua about how he is supposed to lead God's people. And he says that if he does not turn to the right or to the left, he will have good success wherever he goes. And then Joshua, when he's instructing the, later, the leaders of the nation uh, many years later, in Joshua chapter 23, verse 6, it says, Therefore be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left. Do you, you see where I'm getting at? I have, I have more if you want. There are more instances of this that are all very clarifying. I could just kind of do this for the next 10 minutes, and I, but I think four is probably sufficient. Turning to the right or to the left was to disregard the revelation of God in terms of how he has called the people to live. What's the point? Well, the point is Jonah's the one who has a relationship with God. Not the Ninevites. Jonah is the one who has been instructed in the law of Moses in the first five books of the Bible. Jonah is the one who grew up worshiping God. Jonah is the one who has had a special revelation from God about how he is called to live, about the will of God, about the way of God, and the way that God's people are supposed to live. And yet, Jonah is the one who has been thus far in the book rebellious and has failed to obey. There's a contrast. God chose to set his affection on the people of Israel by grace. It was a gift. Not because they were better than any of the other nations, but just because he loved them. In fact, it says in Deuteronomy chapter 7, and you can look this up later on if you'd like, but it literally says he loves them because he chose them, and he chose them because he loves them. So why does he love them? Well, he loves them because he loves them. It's actually a beautiful passage. When you sit back as a follower of Jesus and think, well, why me? Why does he love me? Why do I know him? Well, he loves you because he loves you. You go, yeah, but what, what's special about me? Nothing. He just loves you. Why did God choose me? Because he chose you. Like unsatisfactory as the answer may be to you and your Western logical mind, I have no idea. That's just what it says. God chose the people because he chose them and he loves them because he chose them and he chose them because he loves them. God loves them because he loves them. It's about as clear as I can make it. 
All the way through the Old Testament, God then called his people to walk on the path that he had laid in front of them and that they were called to be a light to the nations. They were called to take what they had heard from God and live into it so faithfully and to display it in such a way that others would be magnetically attracted to their great God and King. So when God speaks to Jonah and he says, there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, he is saying, there is a great city, the citizens of which are very important to me. And they have not yet heard about my goodness and my grace and my compassion and my love and my will for them in the same way as you have. And that's why they're acting the way they act. They don't know me the way that you know me, Jonah. This is the lostness of the lost. They're acting like they're lost because they are. They don't know God. And I think part of God's purpose for sending Jonah to them was that they would have an opportunity to come to know God. Christ City, I just say all that to say. When people around us in this city, whether it's our neighbors or our coworkers or our teachers or our family or our friends, when they act like they don't know God, like they have not yet heard of his goodness and his grace and his compassion and his love and his will for their lives, that is not an excuse to wish for their demise, no matter how far gone they seem. It's God's call for us to enter into their world, to bear witness to who he is and what he's done, to introduce them to our Savior. And God's having this conversation with Jonah, and Jonah's not yet getting it. Because it's in the lostness of the lost that we find the compassion of God. It's in his interaction with a people who do not know him and do not worship him that we actually see revealed the compassion of God. Look back at the text, verse 10. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should, I, should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. Jonah's plant's dead, and he is angry at God. And God says, Jonah, you pity the plant. And that's immediately contrasted with the fact that God is asking Jonah, should I not pity Nineveh? God is God's saying, you were upset about this little plant. Should I not be more concerned with this whole city? See, when God asks if he should not pity the city, that word pity, it has to do with compassion. One commentator says the word means having tears in one's eyes. What makes you weep? What are the things that make you weep? See, Jonah's weeping over the loss of a plant. And God is weeping over the lostness of the city. He is moved to compassion for the lost in the city, for the 120,000 who do not know him, who do not know their right hand from their left. He's not talking about the people who have denied him or the people who have rejected him. He's talking about the people who don't know their right hand from their left, people who have not yet had an opportunity or the same special access to God that Jonah has enjoyed his whole life. Should I not pity that great city, Nineveh? 
God has compassion on them. And it immediately makes me think of another city and another set of weeping eyes. On the original Palm Sunday, when Jesus came into the final week of his earthly ministry, he was up on the Mount of Olives outside of the city of Jerusalem. And he was entering into the city of Jerusalem to obediently do that which God had sent him to do, to go and accomplish what God had sent him to accomplish. And it says that when he got near the city, he wept. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 19, verse 41, it says, When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. So the, the contrast with the prophet Jonah is palpable. See, Jonah went into the city and he preached judgment and Nineveh repented. But he, he didn't want their salvation. He wanted their destruction. He wanted God to judge their evil and destroy them. So he leaves the city, finds himself a vantage point to look at the city from afar with the hopes that God's still going to come and destroy them. He sits outside the city. He's angry at God. He's angry at the situation. He's angry at his circumstances. And he's wishing for their destruction. But Jesus, Jesus is altogether different in the way he approaches the city. See, the city of Jerusalem in many ways was no better than Nineveh. They were lost in their own ways. They were caught up in their own sin. But in their lostness, Jesus does not wish for their destruction. He wishes for their salvation. He weeps for the city where he is going to be crucified. But when we're talking about the city, that's not like an abstract thing. He's talking about individuals. 120,000 persons who do not yet know their right hand from their left. When he's entering into the city of Jerusalem, he weeps over the city of Jerusalem, not the city as one big abstracted kind of concept. He weeps over your neighbor, your sister, your cousin, your dad, your friend. Jesus doesn't stay outside the city. He enters in with a word of judgment, yes, but with an awareness of who was going to bear that judgment on their behalf. See, Jonah leaves the city and weeps for the loss of his comfort. Jesus enters the city even as he weeps for the lostness of the city. Jesus doesn't just enter into the city to preach. He knows he is entering into the city to give his life as a ransom for many. He knows he's about to die a substitutionary death to atone for the sin of the world. And he knows that in his great compassion for the lost, he must go through this and he weeps. He voluntarily enters into the mess of our sin in order to make a way for us to find new life. He reveals what sacrificial love really looks like when he lays down his life for us and he dies in our place and for our sin. Why? It's the compassion of God that understands the lostness of the lost and wants them to come home. Jonah missed the compassion of God. He was upset at the compassion of God. He knew the lostness of the lost, but he wanted them to be destroyed, Jesus enters into the city with the compassion of God, wanting them to come home.
Are they wicked? Are they ungodly? Are they sinners? Yes, yes, and yes. But listen to this. Romans chapter 5, verse 6 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would, even, would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, if you've been around through the series in Jonah and you say to yourself, I know that Brett has preached four of the six sermons in this series of Jonah and he has referenced Romans chapter 5, verse 6, 7, and 8 in each one of them, then you're starting to understand how I think. This is what we need. It's so cozy and comfy. Do you remember? It's easy to abstract this. If you're a follower of Jesus, it's easy to look at this and go, yeah, those sinners. Now look at the text again. While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for me. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for me in that while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. Just throw your name in there. Now, hear me because I know this is sometimes a complicated thing to talk about, but when you look at this and go, okay, God is being merciful to Nineveh and they don't deserve it. And Jonah's upset about that. Nineveh's a wicked city. He's actually correct about that. They're terrible, violent, evil. And God's showing them love, compassion, mercy. Like, well, is his compassion negating his justice? Because don't they deserve to be punished for their sin? Yeah. God's compassion never negates his justice. He's altogether compassionate and he's altogether just, which is why he sends Jesus to the cross to pay the penalty to make a way for our forgiveness and our salvation. See, God never ignores sin. He just deals with it. Which is why when Jesus breathes his last on the cross, he says, it is finished. It is accomplished. He doesn't ignore sin. In his compassion, he deals with sin. See, it's at the cross of Christ where God's compassionate love and his holy justice, it's where they meet. Emil Bruner said, The cross is the event in which God makes known his holiness and his love simultaneously in one event, in an absolute manner. The cross is the only place where the loving, forgiving, merciful God is revealed in such a way that we perceive that his holiness and his love are equally infinite. It's, it's not about looking at someone else and going, look at their evil, they should be punished for it. The, the, the fact is, God will punish sin. He will. You can either accept Christ's life on your behalf where he has taken the punishment for your sin, or you stand on your own. No different than Nineveh. The problem is, Jonah doesn't think they're good enough to deserve it. What's our posture to the city? See, 
See, it's only after we wrestle with the lostness of the lost in light of the compassion of God that we actually begin to find our place in his story. So we need to wrestle with the lostness of the lost so that we can then come to see clearly, biblically, the compassion of God. But it's then and only then that we begin to find our place in his story. Now, I don't want to be sensational or overly dramatic about this, which is kind of funny um, in some ways, I guess you could say. If you've been around for a while, I'm sensational and overly dramatic. I live with my wife and three daughters who think I'm the biggest drama queen in the family. <laughs> which they remind me of quite often, actually. It's just as an, as an aside, which is less expensive than therapy. I, I really honestly don't want to be sensational or overly dramatic because I think there's a way that a preacher or a worship leader or somebody, you, you can get people's emotions all fired up. I'm not looking at trying to get your emotions fired up so you can respond to this. I just want you to hear it. I want you to wrestle through it. When you look at the lostness of the city around us, are you going to stand with Jonah or are you going to stand with God? Like, what's your posture? Where do you see your place in God's story? I just think you have a choice to make. Uh, here's what I think. I think the way that God relates to us should inform the way that we relate to the city. Right? The way that God relates to us, merciful, gracious, revealing himself to us. I think that's the way that we should then relate to the city. So when we were lost, he didn't give up on us. He sent Jesus to make a way for us. So if you're a follower of Jesus, like I am, you know God didn't save you because you're better than other people. Nothing like that. You know that he saved you and brought you into relationship with himself through the work of Jesus as a sheer act of grace. <laughs> it's, just a, it's just grace. God's mercy toward you in Christ is the same as God's mercy to the Ninevites. It's totally undeserved. I think that's the point. <laughs> what happens is you come into relationship with Jesus, things start to change. He makes you his own. And as you grow in maturity in your faith, what happens is you start to take on the burdens of God, the things that he is burdened by you start to take those on. One of those is you take on a burden for the lost. People have not yet come to the knowledge of Jesus as their Lord and Savior. You start to take that burden on. Let me show you. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. It's the See, it's the compassion of Jesus that drives his mission and his ministry. It's his great love. It's nothing else. It's like a gut-level compassion. It's remembering what it was like to live apart from Christ and seeing the people of your city running headlong into destruction. It's what compels you to implore them to be reconciled to God through the saving work of Christ. And you're like, I don't remember what it was like to live without Jesus. I would say, praise God. 
I do. Go hang out with some people who still remember. Maybe make some friends who don't yet know him. Like, I don't know how I get out of bed in the morning, in the world that we live in, without the confidence that God is in control and that he loves me. Keep going in the passage, Matthew 9, 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. See, I think you have a choice to make. Will you accept the call of God to be sent out as laborers into the harvest? Will you be the answer to this prayer? I love this. It's in the Gospel of Matthew. 2,000 years of Christian history, people have been praying this prayer. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. 2,000 years of Christian history, we've been praying for people to get up and go and to see people come to Christ. Be a laborer in the harvest. Will you be the answer to that prayer? Like, like, I'm not running a missions conference here. You just, it, it, I'm not asking you to go anywhere. In fact, I'm asking you to stay. Okay, well, if God calls you uniquely to go somewhere, you should go. But for most of us, we're staying. I'm not asking you to go. I'm asking you to go. Will you be the answer to this prayer? You have a decision to make. Will you accept the call of God to be sent as a laborer into the harvest? See, from where I'm standing, and again, I don't want to be dramatic about it. I think you have a choice. I think you can sit on the hill with Jonah and you can look at the city and the lost with disdain. Or you can sit on the hill with Jesus and you can look look at the city with compassion and tears in your eyes and then you can enter in. See, when you look at the city like Jesus and you see the lostness of the lost and you feel the compassion of God, that's when you begin to discover your place in his story. See, we know Jonah was sent into a hostile city to preach the word of God. And there's a parallel for us in the New Testament that informs our posture toward the city. And it puts a finer point on it as far as finding our place in God's story. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verses 17 to 20, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old's passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Okay. What does this mean that we've been given the ministry of reconciliation? Well, I think the key is to recognize what an ambassador is. We're ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. An ambassador is a representative of a king or a sovereign nation. They don't speak their own name when they go there, they do so as a representative. Our former premier was just announced as the ambassador of Canada to Germany. He's going to go over there and represent Canadian interests in Germany. It's an ambassadorial role. He doesn't get over there and go, hey, here's what I think. He goes over there and goes, here's what my country thinks. 
They don't speak in their own name. They speak on behalf of those who have sent them. And Paul calls our work ambassadorial because he knows the message that we are declaring is not our message. It's the message of our king. We're here to represent his kingdom. Now, all followers of Jesus are ambassadors, whether you're going to accept the commissioning today or not. So I feel like I'm just taking a lot of shots at you. I'm having a great time. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, he said, you're either a missionary. Every, he said, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. <laughs> now, he's dead, so you can't email him. <laughs> I'm just telling you what he said. All followers of Jesus are ambassadors. So like Jesus said in John chapter 20, verse 21, he said, as the Father sent me, so I now send you. See, we don't any longer live for ourselves. An ambassador is living to properly reflect the one who has sent them. And here's the interesting thing. Historically speaking, in the first century, when 2 Corinthians was written, in the Roman Empire, where 2 Corinthians was written, in the Roman Empire, there were two different kinds of provinces. There were senatorial provinces and there were imperial provinces. The senatorial provinces were the provinces that were made up of people who were largely peaceful. They were not really at war with Rome anymore. They'd been beaten down by Rome and they're like, okay, we're good. We're not going to revolt on you. The Roman Empire came in, squashed them, subjected them, subdued them, and they didn't really need to have this ambassadorial ruler in their place. The senatorial provinces, though, were made up of people who or pardon me, the imperial provinces, were, they were not peaceful. Senatorial, peaceful, we're good, just leave us alone and don't kill any more of us. Imperial provinces are going, we might actually try and overthrow you. We might try and fight our way out of this. They were dangerous because they'd rebel against Rome if they could. So it was necessary for Rome to send ambassadors to the imperial provinces to make sure rebellion didn't break out. I just want you to hear this. The senatorial provinces did not have ambassadors. They were at peace with the Roman overlords. The imperial provinces had ambassadors because they were in contention with the rule of Rome. There are only ambassadors in the imperial provinces. Are you hearing this? Now, since Christians here, Paul's calling us ambassadors of Christ or ambassadors for Christ, what he's saying is, is that we've been sent into a world that is hostile to God. This province has not yet been settled according to the kingship of Jesus. This world is an imperial province, and he has sent his ambassadors into the world not to declare war, but to declare peace. Our message is what Paul says in verse 20. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So God has made a way for us to have peace with him, and it's through the work of Jesus on the cross. This is the message that we declare to the world around us as we preach the gospel. It's like we enter into the world that we have, into the spheres of influence that we are all in, and we say, you are at war with the kingdom of peace, and please, I beg you, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he has made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you hear, dear friend, the good news that is wrapped up in there? And he has sent us with this message. And so he has sent his son as a peace offering that you can be reconciled with him eternally. And, and, and as we go out, we implore people to be reconciled with God. Christ City, this is our call. Now, like Jonah, we've been sent into a city that can at times be a bit hostile to God. 
But as ambassadors for Christ, we know that God is making his appeal through us. It's about understanding the lostness of the lost and yet the compassion of God that then brings us to operate within God's story. We find our place in his story and what we're called to do with the few minutes that we have left. Life is a vaporous mist. And years and years and years just sort of start to fly by. You wonder, what am I here for? you got to find your place in his story. Now, we're finishing our time in the book of Jonah today, and so this is the final sermon from Jonah, but I want you to notice that the book of Jonah ends with a question in verse 11. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Question mark. We don't have Jonah's answer. God says to him, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city? We just don't have his answer. I don't know what Jonah did. We don't know what Jonah did. We don't know how he answered. And maybe that's part of the point of the book. It's left open for us. Christ City, how do you answer? Should he not pity our great city? Got to understand the lostness of the lost and then see the compassion of God in Christ and then find our place in the story. Can you imagine what it would look like if this happened? If we all embraced the commissioning that is in this to be ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. I'm just telling you the ripple effect of just our local church embracing this to a new degree. The ripple effect to be felt through the whole city. I believe it. I think this is the kind of thing that changes cities. Not the city in an abstract way where you kind of go, oh, okay, the governing officials in the city hall. And the, no, nope. People. Your neighbors. Your literal neighbors. The people down the hall in your building. People across the street. People next door. People you go to work with. Those of you who are in education right now, your professors, and your fellow students. It starts to change things. We just get a hold of it a little bit. And I'm just saying, what if we respond to that? What would it look like if we responded to that? Like, how would you do that? Okay, none of us are going to save the city of Vancouver. None of us are going to reach the city of Vancouver. Period. We might. You aren't. I'm not we might. What would that look like? It would start with individuals who embrace their role as ambassadors for Christ, and it would start with the relationships that we already have, and us just bearing witness to the truth of God in a way where we're not sitting back on the hill thinking, boy, that city is wicked. I hope God destroys it. But where we're sitting back on the hill weeping over the city and entering into it in the name of Jesus. Let's do that. Let's take those steps. Let's receive that commission in Jesus' name. Let's stand and respond today.